From New England Public Radio, this is the Valley Voices Podcast. I'm Erin Batchelder with NEPR's digital production team. My grandfather said, I don't think she's the best role model. She wears pants when she performs. And my grandmother said, you wear pants, but we still let you come around, and you're not a great role model either. And I knew I was in. As we're wrapping up our latest season of Valley Voices Story Slams, we're listening back to what you shared with us from our very first live sessions. This week, Lost in Translation, held back in November of 2014. Here, we share stories of getting more than you bargained for on vacation in Russia, strong Italian women, and the moments words can't ever seem to convey. Up first is Lyndall Hart. It's January 1991, 10 days after the start of the first Gulf War, and I'm in the backseat of a black BMW careening through the streets of Leningrad with a chain-smoking driver who speaks no English, my new American friend Stan and our Russian guide Anna, and there's a gun at my feet. I am so convinced that I'm going to end up at the bottom of the Neva River, which is quickly freezing over. Now, I've been invited to the Leningrad Film Festival just as the Soviet Union is spinning out of control. The ruble is plummeting, the shops are empty, the people are desperate, and the Soviet Empire is gasping for breath. You can hear the death rattle. My friend Stan has also come for the festival and he wants to do some sightseeing and some shopping. And so one of the guides from the festival, Anna, volunteers to take us on a little private tour. She's got a friend with a car. She also offers to change money for me. Now the official exchange rate is something like two or three rubles to the dollar, but on the black market you get 20. So everyone changes money privately. Anna breezes into the hotel, flashes her festival pass at the guards, and is in. If you're Russian, and you don't work for the hotel or the festival, the guards will not let you in. So here she is. The KGB is crawling all over the place. And by the way, her pass and her credentials are fake. <laughs> she shuttles me into the elevator. A few minutes later, we come back to the lobby. Transaction completed, law broken. And we meet Stan. We meet Stan in the lobby and push our way through the revolving door. My first breath is like a steel blade stabbing me in the lungs, but it's fresh and it's invigorating. And Anna indicates that we go to the black BMW. Something's fishy. She gets into the front seat with her friend. Stan and I slide into the back seat, and that's when I see the gun at my feet. Our first stop, oddly enough, is a restaurant where the American filmmakers in a few days are going to have a private dinner. So we get out of the car to give the deposit to the restaurant, and Anna's friend drives away. Across the street, these two Russian guys yank the battery out of their car and chuck it into the trunk of a taxi. Anna goes over and starts talking to the taxi driver, indicates that we should get into the car, and I think, well, I guess she's offered him more money. But then the two Russians crowd in with Stan and me in the back seat. We end up in this horrible neighborhood because Anna needs to meet someone to buy some medicine. There's no pharmacy here. 
the driver asks me through Anna if I'm interested in purchasing a military uniform for 30 bucks. Anna says, it's too much money. The guy backs down to 25, throws in a pair of boots and a gas mask. <laughs> Worst neighborhood, unmarked building. The driver goes into the building to get the uniform. Anna goes in to take her medicine. And in a few minutes, she wanders back out, happily holding a wad of cotton at her wrist. I buy the uniform, and I swear to you, the boots are still warm. We drive off, the taxi driver, Anna, Stan, me, the two Russians, and their battery, and at least this time, there's no gun at my feet. So the driver drops us off on Nevsky Prospect at a park where there's people selling things like nesting dolls and Russian flags, and they want American money, or Levi's, which seem to be made of spun gold. Stan wants to change money, $100, which is a huge amount, with these two guys in the park, and I know it's a bad idea. But before I can warn him, the guys are gone, and so is his money. Stan insists on calling the police, and Anna freaks out. She claims that she's been raped and tortured by the KGB, but she still finds a phone box, and while Stan is giving his story to the police, Anna starts burying something frantically in the snow. We decide not to wait for the police. We link arms, stroll through the streets of Leningrad in the snow, and Anna sings in English. I can't get no satisfaction. We laugh. Stan takes a picture of us. Anna's kissing me. Her eyes roll back, and she closes them. I'm at the hotel, I get sucked back into the overheated lobby, but there's a little part of me that stays in that revolving door with Stan and Anna and the gun and a shiny black car spinning and spinning and spinning. Thank you. That was Lyndall Hart of Shelburne Falls. Next, Suzanne Schmidt seeks support from the Italian matriarchy. The first sentence that my grandmother ever learned was si prega di portare liberta, which translated means please bring me liberty. But in my great-grandmother's case, it meant please bring bail money. My great-grandmother was a garment worker in New York City, and she had been arrested so many times as a suffragette, uh, fighting for the right for women to vote, that this was the sentence that my grandmother remembered most from her childhood. My great-grandmother died the year after I was born, and so I didn't know her, and so all that I knew of my great-grandmother was that she spoke almost no English, and that there was a picture on my grandparents' mantelpiece of my great-grandmother standing in the water in Coney Island, up to her knees, in a long black gown, pulled up between her legs, and tied off at the waist. I was raised by my grandmother, my mother, and my aunt, who were just amazing people. And this fierceness that my great-grandmother had was passed down. Now, I don't want to say that there weren't men in my family, because there were. They actually outnumbered the women by three to one. I don't mean to offend any of the men in the audience. But as an Italian New Yorker, men argue like it's an individual sprint sport. And the power in an Italian family 
goes to the people that can win the most arguments. And the women in my family know that arguing is a long distance relay event. There are arguments that started in small fishing villages in Sicily in 1920 that are still going on tonight <laughs> at tables in Brooklyn. And so in 1972, when I decided that I was gonna play the drums, I knew that the way to do this was that I had to get the matriarchy on my side. So on a Sunday afternoon, I said at the dinner table, I'm going to play the drums. My grandfather said, that's impossible, girls don't play the drums. You're not gonna do that. And I waited a second and my grandmother looked at him and she said, she will play any instrument she wants. And girls do play the drums because Karen Carpenter is a drummer. Yes, we all remember Karen Carpenter. My grandfather said, I don't think she's the best role model. She wears pants when she performs. <laughs> and my grandmother said, you wear pants, but we still let you come around and you're not a great role model either. <laughs> and I knew I was in. And so I joined the drum line. And so in fifth grade, I became the only girl drummer with nine boys. Now the other thing that happened in 1972 was that Title IX was passed. Boys were pissed. They did not want girls on the playing fields. They did not want girls in their drum line. But I had practiced so hard for this. I practiced every day. I listened to every great drummer. And the night came for the winter performance. My grandfather said, you will wear a dress on stage. Absolutely, I didn't think this was a big concession. Somewhere between the Hanukkah medley and Jingle Bell Rock, I realized that a long velvet gown is not the best outfit for the drum set. <laughs> I don't know if you understand the mechanics of the drum set, but picture yourself on that machine in the gym that works your inner and outer thighs. You're stuck in the open position. This is the posture you want for the drum set. And I start to freak out, and I realize this is gonna be really difficult. And then it comes to me, I look out and I see my grandmother in the audience and there's that phrase, si prega di portare liberta. And I know what I need to do. And I walk over the drum set and I reach down in between my legs and I pull my long dress up across my waist and I tie it down and I sit down at the drum set and I rock that thing like John Bonham. I leave the performance, I meet my grandmother out in the hallway and she says, that was amazing. Your grandmother is here with you. She would be so proud. I got home that night and I realized for the first time in my life that I don't think my grandmother's phrase was lost in translation. I don't think she meant bail. I think she really meant liberty. I think she meant the freedom to be able to show your legs at Coney Island as a woman. I think she meant the freedom to be able to vote. And I think she meant the freedom that someday my great-granddaughter will stand on stage, she'll play whatever instrument she wants, and she will rock that. Thank you. That was Suzanne Schmidt, who took home first place that evening as audience favorite. Lastly, Steve Herschel realizes some things you'll never understand until you see for yourself. Hi everybody, my name is Steve Herschel. I actually won the uh, Storyteller Award in fifth grade, so I'm kind of feeling the pressure right now. It's like I'm defending my title or something. Okay. 
A semester of learning German didn't prepare me for meeting this man whose father died at Buchenwald concentration camp. I took the language on a whim uh, because I was going to be studying abroad in Europe the following year. And uh, I actually learned German from a Russian teacher, which meant that Hitler and Goebbels were probably rolling in their graves somewhere. But uh, I took to it pretty well. I got an A in the class, and I felt pretty capable when I visited Germany the following spring. Um, my crowning achievement was giving directions in German to German tourists who had never been to Berlin before. But there was the time when uh, I asked a train attendant for directions. I was looking for the station at Oranienbergator, but what I asked him for was Onanierenbergator. And I got a really funny look, so when I got on the train, I opened my German dictionary to realize what I asked him for literally translated to masturbation mountain man gate. <laughs> but the train took me to my final destination, which was Sachsenhausen concentration camp. And uh, when I got there, I walked through this black iron gate with the incongruous phrase, uh, Arbeit macht frei, work sets you free. And as I toured the camp, I took pictures so I could show to the friends back home what I had seen there. This was the delousing chamber where groups of prisoners were washed upon the intake process. This here was the room where Nazi guards pointed rifles through small openings in the walls and executed the prisoners. And I felt like I was doing my friends a service by explaining to them what this place was about because I had experienced this personally. But my story doesn't loop back there. Years later, I met this German-American woman with the most deep brown emotive eyes and compassionate smile. And to this day, at age 34, Kirsten's still the only woman I've ever cried over. I actually kept up with my rusty German by eavesdropping on her conversations with her parents. And about five years into the relationship, it finally came time for me to go to Germany and visit her extended family. After toying around in Berlin for a little while, we made our way to Weimar, home at various times to Bach and Liszt, Goethe, Nietzsche. And as beautiful as Weimar was, we were only there to visit its dark side. Kirsten really wanted to visit Buchenwald concentration camp because her great-grandfather had died there. And I think for her it was important to go there because none of her family members had, and she wanted to explain to them what this place was about. So when we got to the hillside camp, we walked through this black iron gate with the flippant expression, jedem das seine, to each his own. And as I toured the camp where some 56,000 people died at the hands of a political party and its enablers, I looked down on beautiful Weimar below and I wondered, how could the townspeople have turned a blind eye to this crime against humanity happening right in their backyards? We made our way to her ancestral homeland near the Swiss border, where I met her grandfather, Gunther, with the most beautiful bald head you'll ever see, as Kirsten put it. And Gunther was a small man. He was about five foot two, the result of malnourishment growing up uh, in orphanages as a child. And as we sat down at the table over meat and potatoes and gigantic baked German pretzels, Gunther wanted to hear about our trip so far. So as Kirsten began recounting to him, our fun times in Berlin and when we got to Weimar in German, I kind of followed along because I had lived this. She slowed down when she said, and then we visited Buchenwald, to which her grandfather responded, wo mein Vater war geschlachtet, where my father was slaughtered. And I understood this and my stomach sank right into my chair and I tried my damnedest not to leak salt water onto the plate in front of me. And 
as Kirsten recounted Buchenwald to its orphan, I started to realize that all the historical texts you can read, all the pictures you can take of uh, these, these sites where tragedies happen, all the films that you can uh, make that recreate tragedies in warfare, none of these really will resonate until you meet someone who's actually lost a loved one to it. Thank you. That was Steve Herschel with a story from the Lost in Translation Story Slam held back in November of 2014. For more from our Valley Voices podcast or to find out about our latest season of Story Slams, visit nepr.net slash valleyvoices. I'm Erin Batchelder with NEPR's digital production team, and this has been the Valley Voices podcast from New England Public Radio.